0: Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here. Today's episode includes 50 caliber gospel word of the day, Yahweh, Born That Way, F and Improving on Perfection. Enjoy. As a Christian Combative, scripture is your arsenal. And while you should be completely familiar with your entire arsenal, You should also be aware that there are certain parts of your arsenal that have a little bit more punch than others. There are certain words, phrases, prayers, and names that just pack that condensed amount of gospel message. So that's why your 50-caliber gospel word of the day, name of the day, is Yahweh. Let's get into it. Yahweh. We often see it spelled Y-H-W-H. If you don't have it in the Hebrew, that's those are the English language, the, uh, uh, the letters that we usually use, Y-H-W-H, to spell the word Yahweh. If you look in the Bible, a lot of times this is actually swapped for the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters. This is why if you go in the Old Testament and you're, you, you're paging through it, even as far back as Genesis, when it says the Lord does this or the Lord does that, uh, it's spelled in all capitals L-O-R-D. This means that it's swapping it out for Y-H-W-H. Now, without getting into the detail of why that happens, it's, it's all about reverence, you know, and, and wanting, to, wanting to make it so the name of God isn't so common. The name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, this goes back to Exodus chapter 3, around verse 14. You should read the surrounding verses as well to kind of get the context. Basically, what's happening at that time is Moses is talking to God in the burning bush. And God is saying, hey, I need you to go. In fact, <laughs> I don't need you to go. I'm gonna, I'm telling you to go. Go to Egypt and go bring my Israelites out of there. You know, go and bring them, bring them free uh, from Pharaoh. And Moses is coming up with all kinds of excuses. Oh, I can't. I stutter. I can't because of this reason. I can't because of that reason. Whatever. So one of the excuses he comes up with is he says, well, what if I go up to the Israelites and they're like, what authority do you have to bring us out of Egypt? You know, who are you talking for? You say you're talking for God. How will we know it? So so, so, Moses is saying, "How do I let them know that I, I am the representative? I'm the prophet. I'm the prophet who is speaking for the God of their fathers." Well, God's response is to give His name. God says, "Well, I am that I am. Therefore, tell him that I am has sent you." And of course, I am in Hebrews, Yahweh. It's, there's other versions of the uh, of that same word, such as uh, I, I think. Uh, I, I become, so if it's a common thing, it says like I become a father when I have a child like it would be it would be it would be that. but Yahweh, God specifically takes this word and he says, okay, Yahweh, I am. It's this eternal sort of continuing to be not a, not a start date, not an end date, but I am. you know throughout, throughout all history he takes this and he says, you know this is the name that I want you to refer to me as this is the the name of God. Now you'll see in the New Testament in John, uh, well, well, Jesus goes around and he uses, these, uh, he uses the, the term I am, and um, he uses it very intentionally. And the Jews, the, the Pharisees, and the, and the teachers of the law, uh, they'll hear him say these, these I am phrases, and they get really mad. Because what they're hearing is Jesus is saying, I am God. Basically, he's using the name of God. He's using the proper name of God. He's saying, that's who I am. Jesus is saying, I am God. And, of course, if he's not God, then that would be blasphemy, which would give them every reason to kill him, right? Which is what they did. (laughs) But, yeah, so in the New Testament, this is why when Jesus says, I am, it causes so much controversy. For example, at one point, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And you're like, well, that's weird grammar. Why would you say that? I mean, if you just speak in English, before Abraham was, I am. But if you think about it, it makes sense. Not only is he using the name of God, but he's talking about the eternal sense of existence. Before Abraham was, I was. Might suggest that there was a point before God was, something else was, right? So it's this eternal thing like before Abraham existed, in fact, before time itself existed, God is. God is here in the past. God is here in the present. God is here, you know, in the future. God is not bound by time. Time is a creation of God, just like the entire universe, all the physics, everything in it. Everything that's, you know, bound by these rules are all a creation of God. So God is, right? It's this eternal, constant. God is the same yesterday, to, today, and tomorrow, that kind of thing. Right. So God, is, Jesus is using the, the, the phrase to say, to, to claim his divinity. I am is Jesus saying, I am God. All right, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to this Yahweh point. Yahweh, again, it's Hebrew. Remember this. And I said that there's different types of the word. Well, there's a lot of good scholarship that says that the word Yahweh is actually a hifil word. Hifil, hiphil word. Hiphil, h i p h i l. Hiphil is a type of is a type of word in in the, in the Hebrew language that is causative. It's causative, so it's not I am, you know, this guy. It would be. Well, let me give you the, Let me let me just cut straight to what, what it would mean in the sense of I am. It's not I am. When God says, "I am, I am, that I am," it would be translated. If it if it is indeed hiphil, like like the scholars say, it would be translated as, "I am, He that causes to be." It's causative. You see. So when the when the Israelites left Egypt, they didn't leave Egypt. God caused them to lead Egypt. God was the moving force, the causative force behind this thing. He was the the initiator, the driving force, the thing that made it possible, the the movement, everything. This is God doing it. So what would that mean in the sense of the eternal reality of God? Before Abraham is, I am he who causes to be. Well, you think about it. This is talking about creation here. If this is indeed Hiphil, like it looks like, then this is talking about creation. There isn't anything that exists that God did not cause to exist. Things that exist exist because God caused them to exist. There is nothing that is, that is self, I don't know, self-sufficient. What would the word be? Self-generating. Now, no 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 people will ask well you know what what caused God to exist? Well nothing God already God is God is back then God is in the future God exists outside of time. There is no necessity for a causative thing to create a God. In fact, if something created God then they would be higher than God and that thing would be God and you've got this you know this paradox of infinite regression. we have oh I'm God well I created God, therefore I'm God well I created that God so that you know that that's not how it works. There is an eternal God, an eternal I am God an eternal, before time, currently, and in the future, God. And if this God is, I am he who causes to be, then that means he causes creation to be. He causes matter. He causes time. He causes physics. He causes salvation. Now, once he has caused things to be, once he has caused, through through Genesis, through creation, once he has caused mankind to exist, and then mankind goes and does something wrong and screws things up. This is not God causing sin. God caused mankind to exist. Mankind rebelled and sinned against God, and then God caused salvation to be applied to mankind. This is through the death of Christ on the cross. So this is a wonderful, wonderful gospel message, all wrapped up in this singular word that we just we use. And it's 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 not just God. It's not just Lord. It's the it's the proper name of God. It is the specific mailing address of God. It is it is the uh, the first, middle, and last name of God. Yahweh, Yahweh. I am He who causes to be, or I am He who is. I am that I am. God exists without the necessity of anything else to create him. Nothing causes God. God exists, I am that I am, without the necessity of anything else existing. Everything that exists, exists as a result of God existing, as a result of God causing other things to exist. God is the reason that you exist, and God is the reason that you are saved. Now, this is if you have faith in God. God is also the reason that you have faith. When you hear scripture, when you read scripture, you know, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Now, this is the word of God works through you because the Holy Spirit works through you. This isn't you deciding that you're going to have faith. This is God causing that faith to happen inside of you. God is causing that faith to grow inside of you. And then God is causing that faith to be effective and save you, to connect you to that that salvific event of Christ on the cross, paying for your sins, dying and resurrecting from the grave so you have eternal life too. This is a beautiful gospel message. One four-letter word. Yahweh. I am. I am he who causes to be. I am he who causes you to have the hope of salvation and eternal life. It's a pretty powerful gospel. That's why this is your 50 caliber gospel. For the most part, when people are talking about sins, when they're talking about the Ten Commandments or something, thou shalt not murder, bear false witness against their neighbor, that kind of stuff, it's pretty well agreed that God's going to hold these people accountable who break these commandments. But what about a different kind of sin? What about something that the Bible says is sinful, but you say, I'm born that way? Well. Let's get in. So, the objection that I was born this way usually comes up. In sins of a sexual nature or an orientation or an identity nature. So if somebody has homosexual tendencies or inclinations or desires or actions, that's when it comes up. They say, oh I was, you know, I was born a male in a female's body or a female in a male's body or I can't help what I'm attracted to. I was born that way. Now, when you say I was born that way in regards to a sin, does that then mean that God does not hold you accountable for that sin? And that's the, that's really the question that's being asked here. If you say I was born this way, God, how can I possibly be guilty for some for some way that I was born? Now, sometimes people make the uh, make the next step, and they say, "Well, God made me this way." It's kind of dicey territory there because. When God made the world, he made it perfect, and then sin corrupted that perfection. So God did not make you sinful. God made mankind perfect, and then sin made you sinful. But is there a difference between an action that you intentionally commit? Say you go out and you steal something, or, or you, you, you stab somebody, or you know something like that. Is there a difference between that and something that you were born feeling? Well, let's look at it like this: You have a sinful inclination. You have a sinful proclivity. Let's say, in fact, let's call it a sinful nature. Does God people does Does God hold people accountable for their sinful natures for the sins that they commit due to the temptations that arise from their sinful nature? Well. That's the only kind of sin there is, really. Everybody sins because they have a sinful nature. You don't have a sinful nature because you sin. You sin because that's what your nature wants you to do. So if you were born this way, I'm sorry. Welcome to the club. We're all born with a sinful nature. Now, this sin that you may be inclined to might be different than somebody else's sin. And sin absolutely is different in how it affects people, a sin of one kind may affect a person or a person's property more than a sin of another kind, for example. If you steal something, that's different than if you're bearing false witness against someone. Or if you murder someone, that's different than if you... Uh, <laughs> yeah, again, like it, it, murdering somebody is different than taking their stuff, right? But while these, while these temporal consequences of your sin are different Uh, while they do cause different amounts of harm and cause different harm to different people or or different things the eternal consequences of sin are the same whether it's a sin of desiring to misuse sex or desiring to misrepresent yourself as God made you as a male or female or a sin to desire, desire to see marriage other than what God intended it to be. Whether it's any of these sins, the eternal consequences are still the same. Any sin creates a debt with God. Any sin requires payment as a result. And the payment for sin, the required payment, is death. Well, I mean... For a sin that you're you're born desiring to do, as opposed to I guess a sin you pick up along the way, um, that's that may sound pretty harsh. But here's the flip side to it: every sin also has the same solution. The solution for every sin is forgiveness that comes from Christ paying for your sin with His death on the cross. So the consequences are the same, the eternal consequences. The solution is also the same. The solution is not stop sinning, never do that sin again because first of all, you're going to fail. And second of all, even if you stop sinning right now and didn't do any more sin for the rest of your life, too bad you already got a debt, you need some way to pay that debt off. And that's where Christ comes in. So at the end of the day, you, you may have a different sin. You, your sinful nature or temptations that come to you from the external world, Temptations that come to you from the devil. These temptations may be different. They may want. They may make you want to commit a different sin than other people. But it's still a sin. Like, <laughs> you don't get. You don't get special special privilege to commit your sin. You know, everybody else. Oh, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Those sins are bad. But my sin. I was born this way. I was born being a sinner. Like you don't. Know, <laughs> No, dude. That's not how it works. You don't get special privilege to do your sin and then all the other sins people are accountable for. Every sin, every sin is counted. Every sin must be paid for. Yes, even that sin, even that sin in your mind, even that sin that you can't seem to control, even that sin that seems like part of your identity, part of who you are, part of what the world tells you to be proud of, all of those sins need to be paid for. And God pays for them all with his death on the cross. So what if I was born this way? Well, I guess like the rest, it's time to get born again. Christ died for you and Christ forgave you. Trust in that. Have a wonderful day. So there's this, this guy who's deaf and mute, and Jesus is spitting and putting fingers and ears and saying words like F. What in the world is going on? Mark chapter 7. Let's get into it. So in this account, we've got an account of Jesus' healing, Jesus' miraculous healing of a man who is who is deaf and mute. He can't hear and he can't speak. And uh, and these guys, basically, they bring this deaf and mute guy up to Jesus and they, they ask him, they, they say, you know, heal this guy. Lay hands on him and heal this guy. And it's not, they don't tell us whether these guys are, you know, faithful Christians or Jews or whatever. Maybe they just... They know that he's a miracle worker, so they say, oh, lay hands on uh, lay hands on our buddy here, heal him. You know, what's the worst that could happen? This guy lays hands on him and he doesn't get healed. You're no worse off than before, so why not? You know. But we don't we don't have anything, we don't know anything about these guys. All we know is that Jesus is going around the region of the Decapolis, and these guys bring a man who is deaf and mute to him, and uh, they ask him to lay hands on and to heal him. So Jesus, rather than putting on a spectacle in front of the crowds, he goes and he takes this guy away privately. And in private, he, well, he does this strange ritual. He puts his fingers in the guy's ears. He spits and he touches the guy's tongue. And now I know you've heard somebody say before, oh, he spits and then he, or he spits into the guy's mouth or he spits on his finger and touches the guy. It doesn't say any of, any of that. It says he spits and he touches the guy's tongue. There's a bunch of fun theories as to why he does this. There's all, like, spitting to ward off the evil eye, or he's spitting because saliva is medicinal or something. I don't know. I like the explanation where he's spitting, where he's... he, he, He puts his fingers in the guy's ears, and he puts his... And he touches the guy's tongue, and he spits to kind of indicate that the guy's ears are going to be opened again to receive, and then spitting... He's going to be able to expectorate some words again. He's going to be able to spit out some words again. He's going to be able to speak. So he indicates to this guy who can't hear him. uh, He's going to indicate to this guy, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal your ears, and I'm going to heal your tongue. And then he goes about it. Uh, He sighs, or if you prefer the translation, he groans, uh, as if in pain or great effort. Uh, He looks up to heaven, groans, and says, Ephphatha which means, or epitha, if you want to say it like that, which means be opened. And this is a performative word. Jesus says something like, as if he were to say, for example, let there be light, and then light exists. He says, be opened, and that's a command, and the guy's ears were opened. And his tongue is unbound. He can hear and he can speak. Um, yeah, so that's, so that's the miracle. And it's important to consider that this miracle isn't a parable. Uh, this miracle is not an analogy. This miracle is may have spiritual implications but it's something that historically happened and now that we consider we understand that this miracle is historical actual literal etc we can look at the spiritual implications without uh you know shoving aside the the historical reality of this miracle the guy that jesus actually miraculously healed a guy who couldn't talk and couldn't hear so what exactly is happening here well john chapter 1 we learn another word for Jesus. Jesus is called the Word. So Jesus is the Word of God. And in this place, Jesus is putting the Word of God, his fingers, the Word of God, into his ear, into the ears of this deaf man. Jesus puts the Word of God into the ears of a deaf man. Jesus puts the Word of God under the tongue of the deaf, deaf man. So the Word of God enters this man's ears. The Word of God is on this man's tongue. And this man is healed, and this man is able to hear then, the words of God, the spoken words of God from Jesus, and he's able to speak and proclaim the glorious thing that God has done for him. So how do we look at this in the spiritual realm? Well, in the spiritual realm, you've got unbelievers. And unbelievers, um, it's not due to a lack of brilliance that they're an unbeliever. It's not that every atheist has an IQ over 400. And it's not due to a lack of, due to a lack of intelligence. So it's not brilliance, it's not wisdom or strength or anything like that that makes somebody a believer or a non-believer. Somebody who's a non-believer is essentially spiritually deaf. They cannot hear, I mean you can, they can like physically hear the sound waves when you're like, you know, Jesus died for you. But spiritually they are deaf. You can say these words and they refuse to take it in and consider it because when you hear something. When you hear somebody talking to you, when I'm talking to you, assuming you understand the language, the words that are coming out of my mouth, when you hear these words, your brain kind of converts them into thoughts and and they sink in. They they kind of work their way into your brain. Somebody who's spiritually deaf, or somebody who's deaf, the sound waves are hitting their ears, but there's nothing getting worked in from their ears to their brain. Somebody who's spiritually deaf is somebody who maybe they can hear the sound waves, but mm, nothing working in their brain. Nothing spiritually working, so not necessarily their brain. I would say their heart, whatever. So somebody who's spiritually deaf is somebody who cannot spiritually hear God's word, and this isn't this isn't something that they can that they can fix on their own. They can't just be pull something out of their ear and all of a sudden they can hear. I mean, granted, the people who are spiritually deaf are resisting the Holy Spirit, uh, Acts chapter seven. Go look it up. Um, but the uh, so being unable to hear and unable to speak. Speak faithfully. Unable to speak God's word, uh, they're—I mean, they, they're—they're kind of trapped. They're kind of isolated. They can't hear and they can't speak. Speak faithfully. This is this is the state of an unbeliever. And what Christ does is, Christ takes has a has a private interaction with them in which He creates faith. God creates faith in the heart of the unbeliever. And this is how the unbeliever's ears are unstopped and their tongue is unbound and they are free to give glory to God and they're free to hear hear the, the spiritual things of God as spiritual beings. Now, the difficulty that I wanted to talk about today is that there's this idea that some groups have that the individual is the one who, who brings himself to Christ. You've heard phrases like, I'm going to give my life to Christ. Or uh, I chose to follow Jesus. Or you know, like any of these phrases where where you say I choose God or I choose to believe. Nah, you're deaf. You're 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 mute and you're deaf. You can't choose to believe and you can't choose to proclaim God's word. That being said, if you do believe, this is not because of your brilliance that you chose to believe. This is because God created that faith in you. This is because God opened your ears to those spiritual things and opened your mouth to proclaim those spiritual things. So if you have faith, fantastic. It's fantastic. It really is. You're saved. But it's not from your own work. It's not from your own actions. It's not something that you can take credit from. Nah. Nah, 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 nah. That's God. That's God who works. If you have faith, that's because of God. It's not because of you. It's not partially because of you. It's not a cooperation. It's not like the Holy Spirit and you are like two oxes both pulling a cart, pulling a yoke together, pulling a cart together, whatever. No, you got nothing to do with your salvation except providing. Somebody says you provide nothing for your salvation except for the sin required. <laughs> that required it in the first place. God forgave your sins. God created faith in your heart. Uh, and in many ways, God does this in baptism. And this isn't you doing anything in baptism. You do not do anything in baptism. God works on you in you in baptism. It's not your work. It's God's work. And that's what faith is. Faith is God creating faith in you, opening up your ears and opening unbinding your tongue so you can so the things that come out of you glorify God. So that's kind of that's the spiritual point of the healing of the blind or the healing of the deaf and mute man. Yes, he was physically healed. indeed. it was a historical thing that did happen. But it also talks about the spiritual aspect of how Christians are brought to faith by Christ, who does all of the work and without Christ, they would have no way to hear, believe or proclaim God's good things. It's all God. Uh, the, the whole reason you're saved is all God. And hey, would you look at that. It's time for donuts. Have a wonderful week.
1: You know there's an axiom in our culture today that says there's always room for improvement. And so as a result, we are involved in a lot of self-improvement projects. we, We are interested in improving on things around us. The question that then is begged is, What happens if something is so well designed that it doesn't need any improvement? What happens if something is perfect and you try to improve it? That's what we're going to consider today. remember when he found this Mauser 22250. It didn't look like this at the time. Uh, Didn't have this stock on it at all, and and the uh, the barrel and the the works were were a little on the rusty side. Uh, The stock was worn, gray, chipped. Uh, The finish was splintering off of it. But when he sighted it in, when he shot it, at a 1,000 yards, he consistently got a one-inch grouping uh, pattern. Uh, he was able to, 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 to pull, pull the target in to that same circle of one inch, sometimes tighter than that, at a 1,000 yards. Now that's perfect. He said, well, what I need to do is, is take it apart, clean it up, get all the rust off, uh, lubricate it, make sure the parts are working well. And then he had this this piece of bird's eye maple that he'd wanted to make a stock out of. So he decided he'd make a stock for this rifle with that, and that's what you have before you now. I watched him for weeks as as he as he shaped, uh, outlined the shape with a pencil, cut it out uh, with a saw, and then chiseled chiseled the shapes in, uh, glued in these these uh, this end piece of wood here, and 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 shaped the stock in such a way that it. It fit like a glove to your hand. It was a perfect fit. And and it, and, and it became part of your shoulder. Everything, everything about it was beautiful. And then he finished it off, with starting with, with heavy grit sandpaper, working uh, to finer and finer, and finally wet sanding it with 2,000 grit paper. And then after that, uh, dry sanding it with paper towel. And then after that, with the rough skin, of his craftsman hands until he finished it off to to a polish naturally that is that is so glossy that you can uh, you can see yourself reflected in this stock a beautiful work of art which unfortunately now didn't shoot well at all when he sighted it in this time after he put the whole thing back together he couldn't get that one inch pattern in fact. The pattern had grown to more than a foot, and no matter what he did, he could not tighten that pattern up at a 1,000 yards or even 500 yards, and he would take the thing apart, look at it, break it all down. What did I do wrong? Put it back together, sight it again. Always the same result. Perfection uh, had somehow, at his his, uh, working, reworking, at his tinkering, had been lost. And he struggled with this for weeks until one one evening, helped along by not a few Jack Daniels, uh, he, uh, in exasperation, he, he cut ten inches off the barrel. So this is ruined. It's an exercise in futility. It's 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 ruined. It's only good for the scrap heap. And he gave up on it. Next morning he he felt. Uh, bad about what he had done. And he looked at it one more time. He took it apart one more time. And when he took the barrel out of the barrel saddle, he discovered there was a little burr right inside uh, on the bottom of the barrel saddle that rocked the barrel back and forth between each shot. So, So the shots would go wildly to the left or wildly to the right, depending on where it was rocking on that burr. That was all it was. He sanded the bird down, made it right, put the rifle back together, and sighted it in. It was much improved. Much improved. He had brought the pattern down now from, from more than a foot down to about six inches, maybe five. But he couldn't get it back down to that one-inch perfect pattern because... He had cut 10 inches of rifling off of the barrel. That 10 inches was was the amount of rifling necessary to make a perfect shot, a perfect group at a 1,000 yards. It was gone. My father, with his tinkering, had indeed ruined perfection. That's a lot like our problems today in this world. You see, we started out perfect. The world started out perfect. All creation was perfect. God designed the universe to work perfectly. He designed us to work perfectly. And he gave care to the entirety of the garden and the universe to to Adam and Eve. And said, these are the rules. You know, follow these rules and it'll continue to work perfectly. And and there was really only one rule. Enjoy the garden. Enjoy its perfection. But be careful of that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. Because when you eat of that, that will ruin perfection. That will break perfection. It will bring death into the world. It will bring pain and suffering into the world. Well, Adam and, and Eve thought they could improve on perfection and so they rejected God's design and his authority with one ill conceived act attempting to redesign creation to fit their improved version and the result was disastrous today we continue with that uh, unsettledness with God's plans and, and, and God's perfection. Uh, and, and we're always trying to improve on things. And you see it evident in gearheads, they're always digging into motors to get another couple of horsepower out of the motors. Musicians are, are constantly trying to rework old standards and put their mark on it and improve it. Chefs reworking old recipes to make them better, more improved. And it's not all bad. Sometimes it comes up with some great improvements. But when you start with perfection and you change that, the results are always disastrous. God's perfect design cannot be improved on. When we try to improve on God's perfect design, it always results in disaster. Evident in in marriage, uh, we've we've tried to work marriage in, in so many different ways. Rejected God's perfect design um, that provides for a whole family in favor of of carnal pleasure and mutual abuse uh, that that destroys families and hurts children. We have rejected God's authority in favor of of personal autonomy and and personal freedom from. Uh, uh, from accountability. We reject the God, the gifts that God give to us. Uh, uh, um, and, we, and we look and we see gifts that he's given to others and we covet those and we steal those because we want to improve our gift. Uh, we exchange the truth of God's word for imaginings of our own minds. We're unfulfilled no matter how much God has given us because in our idea of perfection, There could always be more. And it all results in disaster. It all results in suffering. And it's all the result of tinkering with God's perfection. It's all the result of sin. Of sinful brokenness, of of all of creation since that very first disastrous tinkering. Now, my father was able to redeem himself from his tinkering, partially. He was able to bring this rifle back to good working order, even excellent working order. But he was never able to bring it back to perfection. Because he himself was broken, like you and like me. And something broken cannot produce something perfect. It can only produce or reproduce a dim copy of itself. So if my father was unable to redeem himself, what about us? Could we redeem ourselves? Could we restore the perfection that that we lost because of our tinkering? And the answer is sadly no. Again, um, something that's broken can't make something that's perfect. But that doesn't leave us without hope. Because the one who designed the blueprint for all of creation, the one who manufactured it, into perfection is still a business. The cost to restore perfection that has been ruined is going to be enormously expensive. It won't be cheap at all. In fact, it wasn't cheap. It has been fixed. We are the most important thing that God wants to restore, but in order to do so, he has to completely recreate us, not just rework us like my father did with this rifle. He has to melt us down completely, start from scratch and give us a new birth, create us brand new. And the cost for the retooling of this project is huge, more than you could possibly imagine. But you're that valuable to God. You are that loved by God. So much so that he paid for this huge cost of your redemption and your rebirth and your recreation he paid for it with every last drop of his blood with the very last breath of his body and his life and with that purchase price he offers to you restoration to perfection and in that restoration he guarantees the end of all the suffering that your tinkering and my tinkering has caused. But the best thing of all about what he offers is like this rifle to me was a gift for my father. He gave it to me. What God offers you is a gift. It's free to you, though it cost him everything. Because of his love for you, he gives it to you for free. A gift of priceless worth. And it's not only beautiful.